0: Well, good morning, Vaughn Forest Church. As Chad mentioned earlier, my name is Adam Mitchell, and I'm absolutely delighted uh, to be back with you today. Some of you may vaguely remember my face. I was here back in August, um, helping you launch. I can't remember the name of the sermon series, um, but it was kind of the back to school, getting ready to the uh, end of the summer. But I'm really, really glad to be back with you as we continue on now in week two of the battle for your mind. And I know Chad mentioned this a minute ago, uh, but just the big idea uh, for this sermon series is that your mental and emotional health have a direct impact on your spiritual health. And Last week, Chad, of course, preached on living with anxiety, and I was telling him earlier that I had the opportunity to listen to his sermon from last week. It was either Monday or Tuesday of this past week, and I certainly appreciated everything that he had to say about that. It was very encouraging to me, to my own soul. Um, I needed to hear what he had to say. Uh, But I was also telling him, uh, you know, because if you were here, you, you heard him talk about panic attacks and having a panic attack on a plane, and I was like, man, I've had panic attacks before, but I've never had a panic attack on a plane, and that just sounds absolutely terrible to me, Um, but uh, I was really, again, really grateful for what he shared about that, about all of that, and I, of course, have the opportunity and the privilege this week of looking at week two, where we're going to talk about the idea of overcoming shame, of overcoming shame. That's what we're going to look at this morning in the battle for your mind. So if you would do me a favor, if you have a copy of God's word with you, whether that's electronic or whether that's print, if uh, just keep these two passages in mind. This is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to start off looking at Genesis chapters 2 and 3. And then uh, if, you, if you're in print, maybe uh, take a little bookmark and put it over to 1 Timothy chapter 1 because we'll look at that A little bit later. But we're going to be talking about overcoming shame this morning. Recently, I read a social media post by a pastor who was giving advice on preaching, uh, because you know that's what preachers do. They read stuff uh, of what other preachers say about preaching. He gave 20 uh, just a list of 20 pieces of advice um, of counsel concerning preaching, the, the prep for preaching and then the actual preaching itself. And I'm not going to list off all 20 for you this morning, but there are a few of them that uh, I thought were somewhat relevant uh, to what we're dealing with today. One, one thing that he said uh, to the pastor who's preaching, preach first to yourself, which is vitally important. It's, it's important for you that as I prepare to preach this morning, that I would, before I'm preaching to you that I would preach to myself that the word of God would take root in my in my own heart, my own mind, which leads to the second thing that he says, preach from your preach from your heart, not only to their hearts. See, when I when I preach, when anybody preaches, what it needs to be is an overflow of what is already going on in the preacher's heart and mind. So preach from their heart, not only to their hearts. 3 Don't try to impress, try to help. Now this is especially important for uh, on a Sunday like today where I'm the guest preacher because it can be very tempting to want to show up and to show out, to be impressive. But it's true that you can be impressive without being helpful. And so I'll be honest with you, my goal today is not to impress you, it's to, to help you. In the fourth, it was, I think, the most relevant, especially as it concerns you. And I, I believe this is true. He said this. He said, they, talking about you, the congregation, said they're more distressed than they're letting on. And isn't it pretty common for us to show up on a day like today and no matter what's going on in our lives, for us to ask each other how we're doing and we say, I'm good. But there's a lot going on in each of our lives, isn't there? There's so much going on that's under the surface. And what's interesting to me is how in these first couple of weeks of this sermon series, of course, last week, Chad looked at anxiety. This week, we're looking at shame. And as I see it, you can think about it this way. Anxiety is primarily future-oriented. That is, we worry and fret over what is to us an unknown future because we have no control over what will happen or how things will go. On the other hand, shame is generally oriented to the past of something that has happened and potentially how it lives on presently in the form of shame. So anxiety is future-oriented, shame is past-oriented. But praise the Lord, what we find in God's Word are answers to our past and to our future. And so, with that in mind, what we're going to do today, we're going to we're going to look this idea of overcoming shame. We're going to look at it in two parts. We're going to look at in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, we're going to look at the beginning of shame. So, where did it come from? How did it get started? And then in 1 Timothy chapter 1, when we turn there, we're going to look at the end of our shame. So, the beginning of our shame and the end of our shame. And if you would, let me pray for us, and then we're gonna look into God's word together. Father, we come to you, and we are certainly grateful for this time we have as, as your people, as brothers and sisters, as those who have been redeemed and saved by you to gather together to worship. And Jesus, you are the one that we look to. Lord, we need you. We are desperate for you. For your guidance, for your wisdom, Lord, to answer all of our problems, and we thank you that in the person and work of Christ, you do. So would you lead us now? Would you help us, teach us as we look into your word together, and it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. So first of all, we're looking at the beginning of our shame, because you can look around You can look, I mean, as you consider your own life, as you consider the lives of your friends, of those around you, as you consider what's going on in our world, it's pretty obvious that something has gone wrong. I mean, I think that much is clear, but we need to understand the beginning of that. Why did it happen? Where did, in talking about shame, where did our shame come from? And so I want to do this. I want to start by reading Genesis chapter 2 verses 22 through 25 and we're going to see something very interesting I think about this. And these verses tell us this. It says then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Now listen to this. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. That's interesting, right? They felt no shame. You think about the way things are today, and we can see just a... Drastic difference between what we just read at the end of these verses. They felt no shame. And what is happening today and what we feel today. Now, let me just say, I'm glad that we're all fully dressed in here this morning. Thankful for that. But what's amazing and what we see in these verses is that things at this moment, at the end of Genesis chapter 2, are exactly as they should be, all is right in the world. And we don't even have a category in our minds for all things being right in the world. On our most peaceful days, things still aren't all right in the world, but they are right here. There is full vulnerability. There's complete openness. There's no hiding because there's nothing to hide. Incredible, right? It's a beautiful picture of the initial harmony in all of creation, in all of the universe, between mankind and God, mankind and creation, in between the man and woman. And yet we go, so what happened? Why are things things the way they are now? Let's fast forward a little bit and I want to read Genesis 3, 7 and 8. I know we're skipping over a little bit, but there's a reason for that. But look at what happens here Genesis 3 7 and 8. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You remember what we just said at the end of chapter 2? It says, They felt no shame. They were both naked, and they felt no shame. Everything was exactly as it should have been. But now what do they do in these verses that we just read? They make coverings for themselves. They hide, implying what? Now they feel shame. What happened between Genesis 2:25 and Genesis three verses seven and eight? It's the temptation and the fall into sin. So if we want to understand the beginning of shame, we have to understand and realize where it came from. And it came from the fall into sin. So let's look at this. Just a, a few things that I want us to recognize. And you'll have these in your, in your notes. What we discover about shame from these verses. The first is this, that our shame is rooted in sin. Sin. Our shame is rooted in sin. That's where shame originates. Before that, they felt no shame. After sin, they cover themselves and they hide. Shame has come in and it is rooted in sin. The second thing that we discover about shame in these verses is that our shame separates us. It separates the man and the woman from each other because look at what they do. They make fig leaves. They cover themselves. They hide themselves. And they're hiding themselves from each other. They are ashamed. And what else we see in verse eight? It tells us that they hid from the Lord God. There is separation. There's now a division. There is a, there is a, uh, a gap in the relationship, there is distance that is created there. And if you, if you recall, if you read what happens when God comes searching for them, it's very interesting the conversation that they have because the Lord God who calls out in the garden, he says, where are you? Now, is there ever an unanswered question for God? No. He's not curious he knows. He's drawing them out. He says, Where are you? And they say, Hey, well, we were naked, so we hid. And he asks them another question Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat of? And listen, listen how immediately we see the strife that begins between man and God and man and the woman, the separation that's created because of sin and shame. What is, when, when God asked the question, did you eat from that tree that I told you not to eat from? Adam says, he, does two, he says two different things here, all in one little sentence. He says, the woman that you gave me, gave me some of the fruit, so I took it and I ate it. Do you realize what's happening here? He's blaming two people None of them happened to be himself. He says, the woman did it. She gave me the fruit and I ate. But God, if you recall, it's the woman that you gave me. So he's blaming God. He's not taking responsibility for his own actions. Now, do you see how this has driven a wedge in the relationship? That's what sin and shame does. Once there was nothing to hide from, now they're in hiding. It separates. And then thirdly, we see this, that our attempts to cover our shame are pointless. It's like being caught in a trap that you can't get yourself out of. You can't do anything with this. I mean, think about how silly it is to cover yourself with fig leaves. Because we just experienced the autumn and the leaves do what? They fall off a tree. And what happens when you separate a leaf from the tree, from its source of life? What does it do? It dries up, it withers, and it crumbles. Do you see how silly it is? for them to cover themselves with fig leaves. It is pointless, it's useless, and they are constantly, at this point, if that's how they have to keep going, they're constantly going to be in danger of exposure. Fig leaves, pointless. And to be left in this state would be something for us to genuinely be concerned about. To go, I've made this mess and I can't get out of it. And do you see what happens here, though? We took something that was beautiful and we uglified it. We made it ugly. That's what we did. And that situation is hopeless unless someone else comes in to help. But I wanna jump forward one more time and read Genesis 3.21. Because it's not fig leaves that will work. We need a real covering. So look at what God does in Genesis 3.21. It says, The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. Two things that God does right there. One, and you see, this is just a little foreshadow, a little foretaste of both the sacrificial system and ultimately the sacrifice that Jesus would make. Animal skins, which means blood was shed. Blood was shed. Some something had to die in order that they might be covered. In order that they might be clothed. And that's what God did for them. What's wonderful about this though is that we see just, just a glimpse of something that we're going to see come to fruition in First Timothy chapter one when we get there in just a second. But what we see in Genesis 3:21 is God has not left them alone, He's not left them to, them to themselves. And while our sin was the beginning of our shame, what God does here in providing clothing for them is the beginning of the end of our shame. It's the beginning of the end of our shame. So let's see where this goes. Now let's look at the end of our shame. Now move forward. First Timothy chapter one. We're gonna look, we're gonna finish our time by looking at verses 12 through 17. And as we look at first Timothy one, 12 through 17, we've got four questions that we're gonna answer. As we look at this passage, first question that we're gonna answer is this. What happened to end our shame? So what was done? What happened to end our shame? Second question, how did it happen? Third question, to what end? What's the purpose? Why does it matter? And then the fourth question, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for us that our shame has been ended? So first question, what happened to end our shame? The answer is this. We received mercy, grace, and love from God. Outside of that, we're hopeless, but we received mercy, grace, and love from God. Read verses 12 through 14 with me from 1 Timothy chapter 1. And this is the Apostle Paul. And really, this this whole passage is a testimony of the Apostle Paul. He says in verses 12 through 14, "...I give thanks to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry." Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor and an arrogant man, but I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. In these verses, Paul tells us about two different people. He tells us about himself and he tells us about Jesus. What does he tell us about himself? He says, I was a blasphemer. That's who I was, that that in word, I was speaking against Christ. In my words, I was opposed to God. He says, I was a persecutor. And we get testimony of this in the scripture where Paul was seeking to root out and just completely annihilate and eliminate the church. He was wanting to do away with all these people who were followers of Jesus. He was a persecutor. He says, that's who I was. That was my, I mean, in one sense, that was his profession. Like this is his former resume. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. He says, I was an arrogant man. Another way that that can be translated is him saying I was an insolent or I was a violent opponent. That I was dead set against Jesus. And it was nothing. Nothing. That was going to change my mind. I knew what was right. I knew what was true. And I was arrogant. So I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an arrogant man. He goes on to say that he acted out of ignorance in unbelief. Now, when he says this, that he acts out of ignorance and unbelief, it doesn't mean that he isn't guilty it doesn't mean that he's off the hook for the things that he's done. What's The point is, what he's really trying to get at, what he's really trying to help us see in this. As Paul is saying when he says that I acted out of ignorance and unbelief, he's telling us, I was so lost that I didn't even know I was lost. I thought I was acting in service to God when in reality, I was fighting tooth and nail against him. So lost that he didn't even know he was lost. Do you remember Jesus, one of his prayers on the cross as he's been nailed up and as he is in the process of dying and dying for our sins, he prays this, Father, forgive them. And what does he say? For they do not know what they do. He's talking about the people who were crucifying him, that they are acting out of ignorance and unbelief. They're so lost that they don't even know that they're lost. But we find from Paul, who wrote this in 1 Timothy as a follower of Jesus, what we learn from this is there is no one so lost that God can't find him. There's no one so lost that God can't find him. You can't hide. There's no hiding place that God's grace can't reach. God's grace is amazing. And we know this because look at at what Paul says about Jesus. He's talked about himself and we just looked at that. But look at what Paul says about Jesus in these verses. He says, he strengthened me. He considered me faithful. He appointed me to the ministry. Paul, recognizing that he deserved none of this, that he earned none of it, it was all of grace. Paul says that Jesus was merciful, that the grace of Jesus overflowed along with faith and love. And friends, that's what happened to our shame. It was the mercy, grace, and love of Jesus. That's what happened to our shame. That's how it ends. All right, so if that's what happened, how did that happen? How did that happen? The answer is this Jesus came to save us. Jesus came to save us. Verse 15. First Timothy one says this, that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now I didn't get to be with you back in December. So because I just read this verse, I get to say it today. A belated Merry Christmas to you. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's why I came. What we read in Genesis 3 verse 21 earlier, we saw that God had made clothing from the animal skins and he used that to cover the man and the woman. That's the seed of the gospel that's planted in the Old Testament. And what is planted as seed of the gospel in the Old Testament blossoms in the New Testament in the person and work of Jesus. Christ came into the world to save sinners. And this is the means by which God demonstrates his love, by which he lavishes his mercy on us, by which he pours out his grace on us. The son of God came into the world to save you and me. This reminds me, it always makes me think of a character in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia series. And if you've ever read those, you know there's one of those books Called Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and there is a character in there whose name is Eustace Scrub. And Eustace gets pulled into the land of Narnia with his cousins, Lucy and Edmund, who had already been to Narnia before. Now, some things that you might want to know about Eustace if you don't know about Eustace. He's rotten. He's selfish. He's arrogant. He's constantly complaining or correcting someone else. Edmund, at one point in the book, calls him a record stinker. Now, I don't know exactly what that means, but I know that that's not a compliment. Generally, when you read about Eustace early on, you realize he's just just a terrible human being. He's just a terrible human being. And at one point in the story, he finds that because of his greed, he has been turned into a dragon. And he hates it, but he can do nothing about it. The story goes on and Eustace the dragon meets a lion who's named Aslan, who really is the hero. He's the hero of all the stories. He meets Aslan, maybe a better way to put it, Aslan meets him and takes Eustace to a pool. And Eustace wanted so badly to jump in, believing that he will find some relief for his dragonness. But Aslan tells him that he must undress first, which means you've got to take off your dragon scales. And Eustace, afterwards, when he's recounting the story to Edmund, he says, so I I tear off my dragon scales and I see them laying on the ground and I'm so relieved and yet I look at myself and I'm still covered in dragon scales. I'm still a dragon. He says, I do it again, throw it on the ground, look at myself and I'm still a dragon. He said, do it three times and I'm still a dragon. I can't become myself again and then as Eustace tells the story it goes on to say this then the lion said you will have to let me undress you says Eustace I was afraid of his claws I can tell you but I was pretty nearly desperate now so I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me and threw me into the water. And a little time goes on. And then Eustace says, after a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me in new clothes. What Paul is telling us in his testimony right here is that there's who I was, a blasphemer, a persecutor, an arrogant man, acting out of ignorance and unbelief. But Jesus Christ came and he undragoned me he saved me. I couldn't save myself, but Jesus saved me. And Paul goes on to give further testimony and really to highlight just how magnificent it is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Because look at what he says at the end of verse 15. And then in verse 16, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, and I am the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul says Christ Jesus came to save sinners. I'm the worst. I'm the worst. Holy Spirit inspired scripture, Paul says, I'm the worst. I mean it's almost like he was going, hey, any any list you'll ever read. And Paul wrote list of like types of sins and, and sinners who are in the world. And Paul says, of all those all those lists that you could ever read of all those people or types of people, I'm the one leading the line. I'm at the front. And what's his point? Paul is simply saying that if he, a former blasphemer, persecutor, arrogant man, the worst of sinners, had received God's mercy through Jesus, if he could receive all that, then anybody can. Then anybody. Then Jesus can save anybody. You think about the worst person that you know. Maybe that's you. I don't know. But you think about somebody who has done horrible things. And Paul says, to us about that person. If I can be saved, then that person can be saved. If Jesus could save me, then he can save anybody. As Pastor Tim Keller used to say, we're far worse than we ever imagined and we're far more loved than we ever dreamed. And that love is demonstrated in God sending his son to save sinners like you and like me. He can save anybody but to what end? To what end? To this end. To the glory and praise of God. Look at verse 17. It says, Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Think about this, our anxiety about the future or our feelings of guilt and shame about the past, what do both of those things do? They keep us focused on ourselves. They keep us focused inward. But what is Paul trying to do here with this doxology in verse 17? And what does scripture as a whole try to do? This verse and scripture as a whole consistently seeks to draw our attention upward out of ourselves And on to Jesus, it's constantly saying, look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. Glorify him. He is the king, eternal, immortal, invisible. He's the only God. To him be honor and glory forever and ever. The old Westminster Catechism, in a question and answer format to teach doctrine, has this as its first question. What is the chief end of man? What is our primary Purpose, the answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So I encourage you, I plead with you this morning as we talk about what it means to overcome shame, look to Jesus. Look to Him. He is worthy of our praise, of all honor and glory. So, our last question that we'll deal with today what does it mean for us? That, our, that Jesus has come to end our shame. What does that mean for us? It means, first of all, that we're set free from sin and shame. Now listen, this is true for those who have put their trust in Jesus by faith. So if you're in here today and you've never put your trust in Jesus, you are still under the weight of guilt and shame. And listen, the way in which you get out from under that is not by anything you can do, but by looking to Jesus for what he's already done. He came to save you. So put your trust, throw yourself upon the mercy of Christ and he is ready to save you. And he'll do that today. Trust in him. But for the rest of us who have already trusted in Christ, it means we're free from sin and shame. It means we're forgiven, we're justified, we're made right with God. And to be clear, this doesn't mean that we no longer struggle with sin. We all recognize that, right? That we still struggle. Of course we do. I think you'll, I think you'll be able to relate to this. As I was preparing for this week, I was listening to a, a pastor preach a sermon and he gave this illustration of a man who was praying. And the man prayed like this, he said, oh Lord, so far today it has been very good. I have not been jealous. I've not been spiteful, resentful, or critical. But Lord, I'm about to get out of bed. You get it, right? It's, it, right now, remember Chad talked about the two gardens last week? The first one that we find in Genesis, the last one that we find in Revelation. We're in between that right now. We're living in a Genesis 3 world right now, in a fallen world. And so we still struggle with sin and shame. The point is, what what we find here, Paul talking about, is that it no longer has power over you. You're no longer in in, in bondage to it. You're no longer enslaved to it. It doesn't have power over us. We're set free from sin and shame. Secondly, what does it mean we're set free to serve? Jesus doesn't set us free, brothers and sisters, to sit. He sets us free to serve. Paul said the Lord considered him faithful, appointed him to the ministry. You and I have been set free to serve. Y'all, there are so many who need you in word and in deed to point them to Jesus. Perhaps they're anxious. Perhaps they're They're living with shame. They need you to point them away from themselves and point them to Jesus. That's how and why we serve and we're set free to serve. Thirdly, we're set free to worship. We're set free to worship. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're loved. God's mercy has been extended. His grace has been poured out. He has shown his love by sending Jesus to save sinners. I pray that that reality, that that truth would never be commonplace in your life, that it would never be mundane, that you have received mercy and that his grace has overflowed to you. That is no small thing. That is a glorious truth. And we should never treat his grace, mercy, and love lightly. We worship him for who he is and for what he's done And to put a bow on our time together, let me just finish with this. All that we've heard in terms of the beginning of our shame, but more importantly, I think, with the end of our shame and that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, that he's given grace, mercy, and love, let me encourage you. You must constantly, if you're gonna overcome shame, if you're really gonna deal with it, You must constantly tell yourself the truth. Too often we listen to ourselves, don't we? We have have foreign thoughts that come in and we pay too much attention to them. We have lies that are told to us and it's what the enemy wants us to believe. And we do too often, we believe it. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a pastor, he's passed away, I think in the early 80s, but he was a pastor and he was a medical doctor in England, and he, he wrote this in a book titled Spiritual Depression. He says, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but there they are talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday. Somebody's talking. Who's talking? Yourself is talking to you. And his point is this, that when those foreign thoughts start to come in, when you start to listen to the lies, he says, fight back by talking to yourself. In other words, tell yourself the truth. Preach the gospel to yourself over and over and over again. You wanna get past shame? You wanna get past shame? Tell yourself the truth. You are set free, follower of Jesus from sin and shame. That was something that only God could do, but guess what? He did it. Tell yourself the truth. And I encourage you as we, I'm gonna pray and then we'll sing a song of response, but I encourage you, even as we sing, you tell yourself the truth. Quit listening to the lies that keep you just stuck and embedded in shame. Preach the gospel to yourself every single day. And listen, I invite you, if you are here and you've never put your trust in Jesus, I'm gonna be out here afterwards and I would love to speak with you about that. For you to fling yourself upon the mercy of Christ and trust in him for salvation. But brothers and sisters, let's overcome shame, tell ourselves the truth. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and he's ready to save and to give us peace that we need. Father, we come to you just so grateful for who you are, for what you've done, for your kindness that you've shown us in Christ. Mercy, grace, and love that just overwhelm us And the proof of that is Jesus coming into this world, living a sinless life on our behalf, dying in our place and rising again on the third day so that we might be saved and set free from sin and shame. So I pray that right now in this moment, we would respond in worship to the King, eternal, immortal, Sovereign, gracious, kind, our Lord Jesus. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.